Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to the show. We are looking forward to talking to you today about whatever is of interest to you and your garden. This is a call-in show, so if you will write down our number and give us a call, you'll make for a much better show. Our number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or you can email me if you would like to attach a photo to the email. It is gardensuccess, one word, at tamu.edu. And if you can get those emails to me, let's say before 1230, probably we we'll Hopefully we'll get to them before the end of the of the show today. I just do those answers on Thursdays uh, here during the show. Uh, well, let's talk about what's happening out and about. First of all, we got some interesting weather coming. Um, I hope you've got everything battened down just in case uh, the storms uh, hit as they fear they might, and uh, that certainly hope that there's no hail involved for for us with all the the plants and certainly the farmers' crops that are that are coming along right now for summer. Um, but that's just part of the vicissitudes of nature, this weather, I tell you, it, it makes it makes farming a challenge. Uh, one, of, one of the things I do in my job is work with people that are interested in commercial horticulture. And one aspect of commercial horticulture would be uh, raising vegetables or fruit or uh, flowers or other things commercially. And working with those folks over the years, and having been one myself, uh, I had a fruit orchard uh, for a while myself, uh, I can tell you that it is, it is a challenge. It's, if it's not one thing, it's another. And uh, it is very difficult to make it through a year successfully. And I can talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, but right now, let's go ahead and go to the phones, and we're going to talk to Roger. Hello, Roger. Hello, Skip. I've just got a kind of a quickie for you. Uh, you gave me some advice some time ago to use lawn fertilizer on my shrubs and uh, some trees that I planted, and uh, I've I've never used anything except um, you know a soluble uh, uh, fertilizer like a like a Miracle Grow. Mm-hmm. Can I uh, put the the um, granular type fertilizer over mulch, or do I have to remove the mulch to uh, uh, you fertilize them. You don't need to remove it. Um, it you know, if, if, if you do remove it, it makes it a little easier to get it right down there on the ground, but you're going to have roots up near the surface of the soil. What I do recommend, though, is stirring the mulch just a bit. You know, you can take a rake or something and just kind of 
uh, sort of shake it around a little so those granules fall down into the mulch a little further and then giving it a good watering. If you're using a synthetic fertilizer, those granules, even though it's a dry granule, it's going to dissolve and the nutrients will wash down into the soil. Uh, organics uh, will need to stay moist and microbially decompose to release their nutrients, so they take a little longer. So I guess perhaps if you were going to use an organic, I might... I don't know. I, I might see a little more advantage in not just tossing it on top of mulch, um, uh, but actually getting it down near the soil surface where it's going to release in a much better time frame. Now I'm going to use this synthetic. I, I bought some just the other day. Okay. Okay, well, that's well, all that I need sounds, to know. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, that sounds good. And uh, just now's a great time to do it, too. I'm going to go out before this rain this afternoon. There you go. There you go. Well, good. Well, hey, thanks for that call, Roger. You bet. Have a good day, sir. Yes, sir. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Our number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Had a question from Raymond, uh, wanting to know: Is there a redeeming value to honeysuckle? Uh, perhaps, you know, putting it out on, uh, you know, along a, a fence, uh, fence or something like that, a fence hedge. Uh, and when when would you plant it? Well, uh, there's more than one kind of honeysuckle. Uh, the standard one that everybody is noticing right now. Uh, seems to be the Japanese honeysuckle. It's a kind of a white and, and yellow honeysuckle that grows wild and runs wild. Um, it is very invasive and just a pain. If uh, you plant it, uh, it will be beautiful for a couple of years, and all of a sudden you will begin the battle of trying to confine it, contain it, or get rid of it. And, and that will be quite a battle uh, to make that happen. So I do not recommend it. It's out and about, and, but it is an invasive. Uh, honeysuckle has a, a little berry that the birds can eat, and they can spread it. And it also runs underground and, and spreads itself. Uh, and so I'd avoid that one. Now, there's a, a beautiful kind of a, a burgundy wine pink uh, cream-colored bloom. A honeysuckle called Pam per, Pam's Pink. It's a it's a, named after Pam Perrier named, uh, and it you can go out to the gardens on campus and see one. It's right on the corner of the fence at the German Garden, and uh, it, it's it's a beautiful, very tame honeysuckle. And I would highly recommend planting that one. Another one worth planting is coral honeysuckle. Uh, it's a much tamer. Uh, it's even I would say. Uh, maybe slightly a little less vigorous even than Pam's Pam's pink, but the the um, the um, uh, coral honeysuckle uh, has a very narrow tubular flower. It's very popular with hummingbirds, and so that would be another one that could be. I had one once on a on a light post in in front of the house back when they had gas light posts in front of houses in some neighborhoods, and we planted it on there, tied it to the post, and it made a nice little columnar uh, thing. It was really pretty when it bloomed. Uh, so those would be good, but I would avoid the yellow one. I know it's fragrant, and I know it's popping up now. In fact, I had somebody uh, uh, break some off and drag it into the extension office the other day to ask about it, uh, and I would avoid that. Well, let's go back now to the phones. Again, the number 845-5689, and talk to Jim. Hello, Jim. Hello, Skip. This is Jim Beeler. Yes, sir. 
What's up today? Uh, well, I I sent some photos of some problems I'm having with my large garden that I have out in North Country Estates. It's uh, uh, a problem that I planted, this, did the same process for fixing my fertile, my soil, everything is the same as last year. Planted my potatoes on the 15th of February. They came up, they froze. They came up again, they froze. They came up again, but they got about four inches tall, and they're four inches tall right now. They oh. never grew. They never died. They they never got the – I dug up a few to see what was on the bottom, and my slips are still not rotted. And wow. I sent you an email. Yes, and you, uh, I, I'm realizing now you sent that to my uh, office email, and I have found right. it, and I found it, and am and opening up some of those pictures. Uh, first of all, what a beautiful garden, and uh, you've obviously gone to great lengths, as you indicated in the email, to improve the soil. Uh, so uh, that, that's that's wonderful. Um, I think you said everything but your onions is just not doing like it normally would do. Is that correct? Right. My onions are they're they're really good, but they're not super good like they've been. I've been known some of some of them. Most of the time, they're as big as softballs and even larger. Mm -hmm. This year, there's about fifty percent of them that are uh, maybe baseball size or even tennis ball size small none of them died or anything but they just didn't get as large and i fertilized them and i use nothing but capture rainwater on my garden i i don't put any any water on the plants i've got jugs uh, buried by each plant that i put fertilize and and uh, rainwater in the jug itself not on the plant mm -hmm. and as i did the same thing Every year with my, I use uh, compost from Madisonville, but I let it, uh, I stockpile it, and I don't use it for a year after I bring it home. Okay. I don't put it right directly into the garden. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of things you're saying are, of course, are the right way to do it. And uh, I do notice the garden looks a little wet, and it, it, it looks like a little erosion from some of the beds. Do you think it could have been uh, too wet this year? I realize you're saying that the rain is what waters it, uh, but um, what what do you think about that? Could the roots be sitting well, in a waterlogged condition even though they're well, on a little? My, my beds are raised. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, you know, of course, uh, they're not more than 8 or 10 inches tall, but they're, when it rains, I've got it. The garden established to where uh, an excess of rain runs down the middles and out the end of the garden, rather than you know lollygag, you know, staying in the garden and just keeping it wet. Right. Right. But uh, I don't know. I maybe possibly, possibly. Mm -hmm. And my and the, my black-eyed peas. Uh, I like. I sent. I sent a, the picture of them. I planted them, and they came up within uh, 10 to 14 days, got about three inches tall, and they're still three inches tall. Mm -hmm. They're still pretty and green, but they're they're not growing. They're yeah. just there. Yeah. Well, let me just give some observations. Um, okay. Number one, you're, you're doing a lot of 
grade things right. So that that good good for that. Uh, but that's frustrating because so why are things going wrong? Uh, yeah, P, well, peas often have uh, uh, some problems early, and I see some on your peas, and it's kind of a crinkling of the leaves. It uh, is, and yeah. and that often happens. And I have it happen to my peas, but then they kind of grow out of it. And it could be some insect feeding. I don't think that it's a virus involved in these peas, but I, I've just noticed that early on that can happen. But yours seem to really have it a little, little more than what I would consider to be normal. Uh, when we see that many different species having a problem, there are not a lot of diseases that can be the culprit. Um, the things that tend to hammer a tomato probably are not going to uh, hammer the black-eyed pea, for example. Yeah. Or, and, True. And uh, one of the things I've wondered about, some of your tomatoes had a little bit of a twisted look, would be right. a herbicide drift kind of problem. And yeah. I don't see significant signs of it, but on I noticed on the tomato and a little bit on the peas, uh, signs of a hormone type, uh, a... Um, 2,4-D type, uh, one of those kind of herbicides that where you can get some drift and it can affect some plants. Uh, tomatoes and, and beans and peas tend to be pretty susceptible to it. Other plants it kind of vary in their susceptibility, but that would be that'd be a possibility. I notice there's pretty big grassy area around the garden uh, out there. Uh, I don't know all that in the maintenance of it. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't, of course, use a sprayer that had sprayed broadleaf weed killer to spray your plants, and I'm sure you didn't spray uh, the whole no, garden but, anyway. No, but I have a I have a neighbor that does it. Uh-huh. Uh, well, but I, I, I don't want to start pointing a finger there because <laughs> no. this this is a bit of a longer sh a long shot. Uh, but I just I'm I'm looking at what I see, and a, and a herbicide could affect multiple species. Soggy soil can affect multiple species. Some root rots, there's a few out there that'll hit more than one kind of of, uh, your, of the vegetables you have growing in your garden. Uh, so that's a possibility. Of course, the frosts and the way they hammered the potatoes, that, that in and of itself really sets them back, but they ought to be growing now. Oh, yeah, they should be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a very peculiar thing. You know what you're doing in gardening? You've got you've got a really well prepared soil and um I tell you that I, this year has been a cool year uh early yeah. on and it really delayed a lot of things, but that's not an explanation for why things aren't doing a little better than they are uh, at yeah. this point in the season. Well, I just didn't want to think it was something that I was doing wrong with my preparation from year to year because this is a a kind of a community garden and mm -hmm. there's uh probably 15 or 20 people that uh depend on this mm -hmm. you know they they like to come and get their vegetables from here uh -huh. from me instead of having to go to town yeah and and now they're going to have to find some other source because this is the first time this has happened to me in 20 years yeah and and I I've I've done the soil the same way the same type fertilize uh, I do use a f commercial fertilizer in the winter time when I put the compost on and turn it under and that kind of stuff but not nothing that was different that mm -hmm. would cause this but yeah anyway, we've also had some severe wind uh, that's been oh my horrible. Lord, yes. And I, yeah. I see as I'm lo I'm just looking at all this stuff, and as I look at it, 
I, I can see a little bit of the effects of that as well. It, maybe we're talking about a combination of things here, uh, but yeah. I, um, yeah, well, my, my, I got all of my tomatoes and peppers in cages. Yes. You know, and I got, I have those buckets under them and, you know, when they're small to keep the wind from, you know, blowing them. And I wait as late as I can to take the buckets off to, to right. let them get used to the wind. But, but my, my neighbor, his garden is probably about a hundred yards from mine, and his his is beautiful. He does nothing but just stick stuff in the ground, and it's just his tomatoes and and uh, uh, the his t- potatoes and onions. Everything is just extremely good looking, green, dark green, and bushy. Hmm. But uh, to well, my, on mine, it's just. Jim, I don't know what to tell you on this. Uh, looking at it, I I see a tomato or two that is just it's not long for this world. If if you wanted nope. to, to get a shovel and kind of dig it up so you can kind of shake a little soil and I can see the roots and and the plant and do some some things uh, in at the extension office to to examine the plant a little more closely, I'd be happy to take uh-huh. a look and see if okay. what we can find. It it looks to me like the the root system is just not doing its job and there are a lot of things that can affect the root system from nematodes oh, to yeah. verticillium fusarium and y- you name it yeah. but um, it, it's just really really struggling the leaf roll the yeah. pur- purplish uh, veining on the leaf and other things uh, I, I guess so i mean we could probably i could hem and haul all day on it and not get anywhere yeah. so let's take a look at some uh put them in a ziploc i mean a trash bag or something and maybe bring some examples of do, do it to some of the peas, dig a few up. Uh, but again, don't let them just break off at the ground. Try to get some roots. And l- yeah. let me just see what we can see. Uh, the fact that it's happening pretty much to the whole garden and it's not happening in your neighbor's garden. Um, I don't know. I Is there any possibility that when you grabbed a bag of fertilizer, you might have grabbed a weed and feed? Do you, do you even have that oh, on no, the property? I, oh, no. Okay. I don't use weed and feed. Uh, okay, that's that's a disaster. Well, I, it would be, and uh, but he, you know, we're, I'm looking for something that we could explain yeah. what happened to the whole garden. I, well, I wonder about the the mulch that came in. Now, mushroom mulch shouldn't have problems. It's it's a no. wonderful mulch, but that was something that was added in large quantity to the whole garden. Oh yeah, uh, about six inches. The whole fifty yeah. by fifty garden. That's a lot, and in fact, that's a whole lot. Uh, I don't know. It, it's going to be something like these things I'm I'm stabbing at that where we could blame the whole thing on something that happened to the whole garden. Well, I'm going to blame it all on your sister. Oh, oh, Bar- listen. Barb is the problem. I I have done that for decades. <laughs> I have done that for decades. No, and it it doesn't always work, but I still try it again and again. <laughs> well. Anyway, I just wanted to I, I read your article every time it comes out in the paper, and I get such good ideas and stuff from you. And well, I, thank you. I appreciate it, and I just I figured if uh, anybody could help me, you were the you were the guy to do it. So uh, I'll I'll take your advice and send you some stuff. Oh, and by the way, those potato slips. Yes. She she pulled up a couple of them, and and the bottom of the those slips that we planted. It's still hard, but the root system on them looks like they're just a mass of uh, 
squiggly stuff. You know, it doesn't. They don't look like roots. Hmm. She uh, she sent you some uh, some pictures, but she didn't know how to do it. Okay. And they didn't turn out. Okay. But well, uh, yeah. Let's look at a sample, Jim. One last thing. I'm I just looking through the pictures. That is a squash vine borer. You sent a picture of a squash bug on the on the plant, and it is the vine right. borer. So that little mama is laying eggs every day, and, every, yeah. and it's a time bomb uh, for your squash. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll take care of it then. All right. Thank you for All the right. call, Thanks, and Kip. look forward right. to seeing a sample if you could bring one. I'll send them to you. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845 845- Five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, or by email garden success at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu. All right, let's see. Let's go back to the email. Uh, Brooks has um, some larger size knockouts, and the bushes have just suddenly kind of died. It's like the whole bush died. And uh, you know the question is what what's going on what and and can I go back in and is it okay to plant some um, uh, a knockout back in that that same place and and Brooks I would say that the answer to that is it depends on what what killed it if you have an entire bush suddenly turn brown and die that is a root issue as you indicated. And so it most likely is some sort of a rot or decay. Uh, you know, if some bug chewing on the end of a root or something isn't going to do that that much. Uh, and the uh, some of the other rose-destroying uh, disease type problems like rose rosette, would there'd be some real unique symptoms on the top before you saw it turn brown and die. So I think something's wrong in the ground. If we could determine what it was then we would know what to do. Uh, if the area doesn't drain well, that predisposes it to some of the root rots that can occur. Doesn't mean you're going to have one. It just means those roses may may do what yours did. If you have another one that has not died, that if you can catch it when it's sick but not dead, but you, you've seen this and you know this one is about to die, if you can immediately dig that up and put it in a big old giant trash bag, and take it to the plant clinic uh, here on campus. Uh, you can go online to plantclinic.tamu.edu. There's a form you can print up and fill out and have them take a look. It may be that they can put a name on the root rot in this case, that's what I think it is, that's doing it. And then we would know which product might help uh, you, as applied as a drench uh, to some of the roses. But a lot of these are connected to e excessive soil moisture uh, around the root system, which means a lack of oxygen around the root system. Uh, other than that, uh, I don't know anything that would cause a large knockout bush to just turn brown and die. Uh, so hopefully that will help uh, a little bit. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, so we got some strange... Uh, 
things going on. You know, I've been doing this for 30, well, professionally for 33 years now, and it still amazes me how I run into things, and I'm not sure what, what that is. Uh, sometimes a little more information kind of helps get to the bottom of it, but uh, sometimes you're just left with a mystery. Well, let's talk now on the phones to David. Hello, David. Yes, sir. I had a question about, I suppose, some Yopon holly that I'm trying to make a hedge line against my back fence with. Um, it's in a the lowest spot on my yard, and I think that's not helping the situation. Um, I've had a few of them die on me over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. and have replaced them. The replacements that went in in the fall seem to be doing okay at this point. But, uh, you know, one, I was curious if there was, you know, anything specific I should uh, attempt to do about my low placement and maybe not ideal soil. And yeah. my other question is, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm not patient or if uh, my choice of Yopon is not really going to work for this site, you know, should I consider a wax myrtle or something that might be faster growing or better suited for mm -hmm. the condition? Well, wax myrtle would be the one uh, that for a hedge, if you want an evergreen hedge that would uh, put up with the, the wet conditions, but yopon should do pretty good. And it's not going to be, it's not going to grow submerged, of course, but um, it, it grows in a lot of places uh, that stay very very wet but usually it has a little bit of drainage around it I don't know if there's anything you can do to improve on the drainage maybe rerouting runoff water or you know whatever might work on your site but if you could improve on it a little bit that would help uh, putting in a berm of soil uh, getting if the drainage is the issue having a, a little bit of a berm uh, going across that area would give you something a little high and dry to plant on and then you it would open up your options uh, for the plants that you might try is the sunlight pretty good there uh it's pretty decent actually the part of them are under shade and the ones that didn't make it uh, were the ones that were getting you know at least uh half a day of sun like i said they're they're up against kind of a back fence line it's a you know, six foot privacy fence, so mm -hmm. they're only getting partial sun there, but you know, they they have plenty of hours for fuel pond anyway. Yeah. So are you are you uh, are these plants like being dug and, and transplanted or are they coming out of a bucket that somebody grew them in? So those those were I believe all of them were three gallon containers. Okay. Uh, so when you pull them out of the container, look for circling roots, uh, first of all, and cut those. Uh, they're not going to unwind in the container, that's for sure. Right. I would focus my planting as much as you can on, like, October, November season. Uh, it's milder, and the plant has a chance to get roots down. Uh, the closer you get to summer, like right now we're on the very doorstep of summer, the more those plants are going to have to pump a lot of water, and all that water is going to get pumped out of the, the cylinder of roots that came out of the bucket. There's no roots reaching any further into the soil because summer hit before they had a chance to do that. And so you can keep them alive by watering those, tr those transplants right at the base, which is not normally how we water plants. Uh, but that's where all the roots are. 
and keep that alive with, uh, it's almost a daily uh, watering if it's really, really hot outside. Because in the nursery, they were getting watered once or twice a day in the bucket when it was hot. And so maybe uh, the opposite of wet is the problem. Maybe um, that it got, the demands were too much. And you can have that problem even on moist soil. You know, your soil can be moist, but that root ball gets pumped dry because that's where all the roots are pumping water. And it takes a while for the soil around it to kind of wick inward where it can get a little bit more water. Uh, and so you, you can have a, a, a drought-related problem on them as well. That makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, either way, good luck with them. And uh, uh, just think about some of those things, and uh, I, wish you, I wish you well. All right, Greg, thanks. Or, uh, David, David, thanks for the call. Now, speaking of Greg, let's go talk to Greg now. How you doing, Greg? Good afternoon. Hey, I sent you the email about the rose thrips. Yes, I got it. And I did a follow-up, a little video that shows a little <laughs> skirting. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I guess that's rather telling. You, you, uh, If there were a award for the most thrips on one flower, you, you ought to apply <laughs> for it, because I think you might win. Uh, that was... Those are thrips, and uh, this year's been bad on thrips. I had a conversation with some uh, one of the researchers this morning uh, in Hort Department, uh, some problems they've had with, with thrips coming in and uh, trying to keep them out of greenhouses even, you know, where they're where growing plants. Uh, thrips are uh, a big problem this time of year. They're out there on the wildflowers. If, if those of you listening do not know what a thrips looks like, and by the way, thrips is both singular and plural, it's correct with an S is yeah. both singular and plural. Uh, I don't know why they did that. But anyway, um, you can go out and get one of these little pink wildflowers on the side of the road. I grew up calling them buttercups. They're not buttercups. They're kind of a primrose type thing. But uh, just look at one, and you'll see these little tiny things moving around. They show up so well in that bright flower. Uh, that's what the thrips are. And they just literally, like a cloud of smoke, uh, come across the landscape with the wind. And they love roses, especially uh, uh, some of the lighter colored uh, rose petals, but they'll get on anything. Uh, and, you know, I, with the amount you had, you can, you can try a systemic in the plants, uh, which was one of the things you asked about in your email. Uh, and it, 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 it would probably help, but there are just so many that if each one came and and they have a rasping mouth part so think of a reciprocating saw that's what they're doing to the pedal with their mouth uh, and they're just rasping that that pedal and so even if you killed everyone that fed on it that'd still be a lot of damage um, the another product that's on the organic end of it is called spinosad s-p-i-o-n s-p-i-o-s-a-d spinosad and uh, those can be used, but they're a contact. But with spinosad, if you don't do anything but spinosad over and over, they'll develop a resistance to it. So you would only want to use it a couple of times a year uh, in the spring, you know, when your big thrips problem, uh, when it seems to be the worst. Uh, but maybe and it, it does appear. Yeah, it does appear that the vegetation is not being hurt. Uh, not not much. No, they they're interested more in getting into the flowers. Now thrips can uh, they can feed and and do a lot of things they and for some plants they they bring uh, viruses and other problems in 
Uh, I don't know that thrips vector any rose viruses. They might, but I'm not. I'm not aware of any uh, that they might. But yeah, they're they are a problem, and this is a bad uh, year. Well, I sent you the before and after, just so you would see uh, that yeah. that that drift rose has been a spectacular mm -hmm. plant. And fortunately, it's fortunately it's well out by our front gate by itself. So. We hope that the thrips will stay down there and not get into the rest of the yard where there's lots more rose bushes for them to feed on. So I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know, I don't know how much it prevents. You know, we haven't found them on the other rose bushes, including several more drift roses. Okay. So I don't know if it's a preventative measure to go with a systemic just in case, but you know, for, to catch it in an early infestation. Well, and you would need to get that on really I early. You, I would be putting that back okay. on in February or something uh, to uh, get get ahead uh, of it. It needs time to move up in the plant and with the the spring growth of the plant and so on. Um, I'm not real big on systemics on flowering plants, but in this case, well, the, I, I didn't know what else to do because a couple of applications that I mentioned topical did not seem to deter the numbers at all. So. Wow. Of a couple of insecticides. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, and I don't let it run its course. That's another thing, too. Uh, they're going to be around as long as that thing keeps on trying. It, it, I mean, it is still a routinely, it is putting out new blooms even now, right. but just new food. I don't know, you know, what, what, what the best course of action is. Yeah, I, I would just continue to care for the rose like you care for a rose, uh, but maybe uh, consider uh, kind of a knockdown-like thing, like I mentioned, uh, that's mm -hmm. okay. that's a little little less toxic on some other things, and sure. uh, and then the systemic would would certainly be an option. Uh, just make sure it's got thrips on the label, uh, and I can't open the photos. I don't know what why, but for some reason I can't huh. open them. But I can't open the video. So, so I am certain that we are talking about thrips. Well, if you're able to open, you'll see that it is a it is a single drip rose. This is an endorsement for drip roses, obviously. Mm -hmm. Drips for secondary. Mm -hmm. uh, those the drip roses have for us have been spectacular. This is a this is a rose bush, a single plant that's probably at least three feet wide and close to three feet tall, maybe four feet wide, and wow. just just hurts itself with blooms. So, hmm. well, good. They are beautiful roses. Uh, the drifts. That's... Right, well, well, maybe I'll put it in the picture again. And okay. In case it opens the second time. Thank you. All right, Greg. Thank you very much for the call. Our number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's see, Scott emails uh, about a thornless blackberry that has thorns. Um, so, and Scott, as you uh, mentioned in the email that that was sold, uh, you somehow it got mistagged somewhere along the line. Uh, I am not aware of any thornless that develops thorns uh, in, in terms of like a it reverts back or, or some, some type of thing like that. Uh, I think probably just got the wrong plant unless you see parts of the plant that are thornless and parts that aren't. Uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know. We could, depending on the specifics, it, it may be possible that two different plants were put in that container uh, or two uh, root cuttings that however they grew them. Uh, or started them off. But yeah, you don't have the one you, you had hoped uh, that you had. Uh, and then a question about a cedar elm. I got a young cedar elm plant and the question is do I stake it and you know pruning it and things like that. And the cedar elm is, is a great tree for our area. Uh, I, I have a little bit of a thing with elms in general. 
Uh, they're they're kind of weedy trees. Uh, the seeds come up everywhere. Well, they're native, so I guess you know we tend to not call something invasive if it's native, but they're they're they can be invasive. I mean, they are coming up everywhere. Well, you don't want them to be like the flower bed, but that's just part of the deal with a lot of our a lot of our plants. Uh, but cedar elm is extremely tough. It'll grow in very poor soil conditions, uh, and it'll grow in good soil conditions as well. It's not a huge tree in general. Uh, the regular American elm it grows faster into a bigger, wider spreading tree, but it, it is a good tree. As far as staking, I you know, you might put a little stake with something loosely tied to the trunk that allows the trunk to move, but not you know, a 30 mile an hour wind bend it way over to the side. So I would, it may need a little bit of support uh, in order for it uh, to do its best. Um, but I, I, in general, a, a tree that's that young and has that small of a, um, um, uh, tr a trunk, uh, it, it's not something that I think you're going to need to worry about trying to stake. It looks like it's a pretty sturdy little tree. When you, when you plant it, firm the soil in around it. Again, it was grown in a round container like everything is, so definitely cut some roots when they're going in a circle. It will establish much faster and more successfully in the long term. So I would, uh, I would consider, consider that. Uh, I think uh, once it gets established, let's say six weeks after you plant it, uh, if you want to give it a little bit of fertilizer, just a little bit to boost it along, keep the grass and weeds away. The number one reason our trees don't grow faster when they're young uh, is uh, the competition from grass and weeds. And the number two reason is related to that, and that is a lack of water. Uh, people think a fertilizer is making plants grow. But when uh, a young tree doesn't have an extensive root system and it's a little bit on the dry side, the growth shuts down. And so even if you don't fertilize, just watering if needed, you know, if the soil's moist and rained an inch this week, you don't need to, of course, but uh, just some watering is one of the most important things for getting good growth out of a tree. And then a little fertilizer helps. Uh, just a boost. But keep the grass and weeds away because they compete for water and they compete for nutrients. And the worst thing of all is they attract weed eaters and lawnmowers, the grass and weeds. And weed eaters and lawnmowers nick the bark, introduce cankers, and create havoc for that young tree. And I, as a person who has tried to get just a little closer with the weed eater line but not quite hit the trunk, I can tell you that doesn't work. At least you don't get away with it many times. And so a nice mulched area. If you were to interview any tree on, on, uh, on the in the neighborhoods that we have around here and say, how far away do you want grass to be? The tree would say, I want to look at the horizon and not see any grass. Uh, grass and trees don't get along. And we make them get along. But uh, trees shade grass, and that takes grass down. Uh, and grass is a competitor for the trees. The tree wants a forest floor environment. That's where trees are from. That's what trees like. They want decomposing leaves on the surface covered by new leaves that will soon in the next season be decomposing themselves and that just gets richer and richer. There's no grass or weeds. They're mulching themselves. The, the mulch is preventing erosion and preventing crusting of the soil and uh, allowing a cooler soil condition around them. And so when you put a new tree in, 
the bigger you can make its mulch bed around it, the better off it's going to be. Now, I realize aesthetically in a yard, you know, you can't have a tree the size of a broomstick with a 20-foot in all direction mulch bed, right? But at least keep the lawnmower and weed eater away. And then if you can go out as wide as the tree branches for at least the first few years, that will not only keep your tree happy, but you will have a much bigger tree. Because our goal is to hang a hammock in it, right, as soon as possible. And so we want, in other words, we want a tree that grows, grows big and fast. Uh, and you can achieve that. No, no weed competition, no grass competition, adequate watering during dry spells, and a mulched bed around it. And you've done everything you can do for, for that tree pretty much. I mean, there are a few other little things, but that's, that's the key to success. So, Scott, I, I used your simple question for a long rant. And so I'm going to give the phone number and maybe some of you guys listening that are interested in asking some questions, well, you can give us a call. It's 845-5689. 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Going to the email, Beth is beset with bugs. So those are my words, not hers. But Beth uh, has some bugs on a blue bonnet. And, uh, and, and in fact, it is a true bug. Uh, there, You know, we refer to all insects as bugs sometimes, but the true bugs have piercing, sucking mouth parts. Uh, in the genus Hemiptera, and it is a Hemiptera on the blue bonnet. But blue bonnets are on their way out. Uh, they are they have set seed. The seeds are maturing. Some are even turning brown now, getting ready to pop open and throw those seeds everywhere. And I wouldn't worry about any bug on those plants at this time. It's certainly not worth treating for. Uh, there are just a lot of different insects out there in, in the environment. And so just because they show up on a plant, or even if they might be a threat in terms of they feed on the plant, it doesn't mean you have to spray. Uh, there are a lot of situations where it just doesn't warrant uh, spray at all. So that, that's the blue bonnet. Uh, also, squash vine borers have showed up, and leaf-footed bugs have showed up. Boy, I tell you, you got the bad... Uh, I said Beth is beset with bugs. Beth is beset with bad bugs. We'll throw another bee into that. Uh, squash vine borers is the yellow and black moth... Uh, that looks like a little wasp when it sits on the leaf. It, if you don't know what it is, you might think it's a wasp. Uh, but they lay eggs that tunnel into the vine. They bore into the vine, like their name implies, and they sever all the tissues, and the whole vine just collapses, wilts, and dies. Uh, they're bad. And the leaf-footed bugs, they suck the juices out of our plants, specifically our tomatoes is where we see them, and peppers and some other things. So uh, those are both uh, not good to have. And I'm going to stop for a moment and go back to the phones, but I will come back and talk about what to do about those two bugs in just a moment. So now let's talk to Seth. Hello, Seth. Hey, Skip. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What's up? Hey, I just want to push. Oh, well, I just want to push back a little bit on your on your last comment on on trees. It sounds like your main goal is to grow a tree fast and big as possible, but I wonder if that's always the best thing for the tree. I mean, I think of a lot of trees that evolved in forests and successional, where a slow growth to develop, you know, really dense wood mm -hmm. uh, and maybe a little more stress resistance overall might sometimes be in our best interest. What do you think about that? Yeah, I guess you could make it you could make a case for that. Uh I I find that each tree species is going to have a range of how fast it wants to grow. Uh some things like a um 
oh gosh, uh, some of the, the oaks, for example, are, are, are notorious for being a little slower growing, and you're not going to make them take off and grow like, like a mimosa or something, uh, for example. But I would say within the first few years, trying to get some good growth on it, just so it's a, a larger tree, and I, I don't see a problem with that. Now, um, certified arborists may, may disagree with that, and, and I could be maybe suggesting too much of a push, but what I find is people plant trees and they seem to just sit there for a long time. And it's natural for them not to grow, you know, day one, of course. But uh, I see that the lack of care and especially the the uh, grass and weeds up against the trunk uh, issues are are something that really sets things back. Uh, one, one year when I was in, in school, uh, we went out to a pecan orchard, and the orchard had been a Bermuda pasture. And uh, half of the orchard, they'd killed all the grass in it and planted trees. The other half, they just mowed it down and planted trees. And five years later, you could not believe the difference in the size of those trees, just from the weed competition versus not having the weed competition. Uh, and that was with a bare soil, not the nice mulch that the trees would have preferred. So. Uh, just sure. kind of thinking out on uh, out loud on that. If you ever yeah, run most a... of your listeners oh, probably ahead. probably prefer immediate impact. Um, but I guess I'd be interested if you went back and visited that pecan orchard twenty years later. Mm -hmm. um, if the if if those trees maybe suffered a little less damage just because they were a little more acclimated to the stress early on, um, rather than growing them sort of like a like a like a plantation or a monoculture. Yeah. Well, that's. You know that's an interesting thought. I, I I do know you know like you said with home home trees people want a tree soon, and with a pecan orchard you want pecans soon because the goal is to make some money off those trees. Um, I, I I know that even if a tree grew fast when it was young, and let's just say that the wood wasn't as strong, and I don't know if that's true. We need a dendrologist or something to call in <laughs> and help us there but uh, as it gets older and slows down a little bit it's going to be laying on rings and developing a, a, a what you would have been advocating for is a, is a, a little bit slower growth rate uh, in the tree tissues themselves and of course the, from one species to another the strength of the wood is is different but within any given species uh, I think it's going to slow down and be okay I'm not worried about it, but uh, your point's well taken, and it probably is worth a, a closer look just to see if there has been any research on the difference between those two. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for all you do, Skip. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for the call, Seth. I appreciate you throwing that out there. Yep. Let's see. 845-5689. Um, 845-5689. Or by email, gardensuccess at tamu. Edu. I don't know if any forestry specialist or tree specialists of any type uh, are listening. I always, you know, every time I get on the show, in fact, I was telling someone yesterday afternoon that I am conscious of the fact that I am in College Station, Texas. So anything I say about entomology, plant pathology, soil science, plant nutrition, horticulture, vegetable production, <laughs> tree arboriculture, is is being heard by people with uh, a lot of PhDs after their names more than and and I don't even have one, uh, and so it's it's always a little bit of a challenge to uh, to make sure that at least I think I'm right, and so we'll see we'll see how well that holds up. Oh my goodness! Well, let's go back to uh, Beth's question on the squash bug or squash borer and the leaf-footed bug. Uh, the squash borer 
can be controlled with some insecticides, but you have to regularly apply them to the vine itself and to the base of the petioles, the stalks of the leaves, the vine area there, so that when the egg hatches and crawls down and bores in, it encounters the pesticide and it kills the insect. The next step would be if you didn't do that, and, and the reason I don't do that is because I don't want to endanger bees. You you can, with certain products applied at certain times you and in a certain way, in other words, don't put them on the flowers, put them on the vine, uh, you can avoid a lot of bee problem, but I, I just don't take that chance. The next step would be to do a surgery uh, and uh, split the vine lengthwise when you have the borer in it and just kill it with the tip of your knife and cover it with a little soil and hopefully hopefully it keeps going. Uh, what I'm doing this year is using a garden mesh. Uh, now, often we've talked about row cover fabric. Row cover is a spun-bound polyester. Uh, it is like, if any of you are seamstresses, it's like the material called stabilizer, but much, much softer. Uh, it is, if any of you have changed a diaper, uh, it is the the material between the baby and the absorbent material on the inside of a diaper. That's row cover. It's the same kind of stuff. And we've used that to block out insects. But we now have more availability of a material that I refer to as a garden insect mesh. Uh, sometimes we throw the word netting in. Uh, the word netting uh, kind of you picture like a fishnet or a, a net for birds put over plants with big old giant holes. This is something that the holes are as small as the screen on your house windows, but it's super soft. It is as soft as a bed sheet. It, it just, and it's super, super lightweight. And so you put it over the plants, light goes through very well, air goes through very well, water goes through very well. But when you put it over the plant, drape it to the ground and lay something on it so that it, it um, doesn't blow off or move off, uh, it keeps the bugs out. And you have to go in and hand pollinate your squash. You could do that in the morning. Uh, just whatever blooms are open, grab a male bloom and dab the female blooms on the end with that pollen and very end of the of the pistil inside the flower. And uh, you know you can do that yourself. Uh, but that would be the way to avoid them. Most people are not going to probably be willing to go to that length. And so squash borer remains a, a, a problem for us without a, a simple silver bullet answer. The leaf-footed bugs, number one, learn what they look like when they're eggs and when they're young. Uh, when they're eggs, they're little square plates with little tabs sticking out of them that are laid like shingles on a roof, just one long row of them down a petiole or across a leaf. And when you know what they look like, you can just snip that off and throw it away, and you've gotten rid of the whole batch before they even hatched. The young look like little spidery black and orange insects, but they're in herds. The beneficials, like assassin bugs that, that can be black and orange, tend to be more solitary. They don't hang out with the class. Uh, they, they go off on their own. Uh, but when you see a little herd of them, that's probably the uh, leaf-footed bug. Uh, you know, go online and do a search for leaf-footed bug nymph, N-Y-M-P-H, and you'll see what they look like. Uh, and, and once you know what they look like, you can just have, you know, a little pail of water. So I put some soap and water, and you put it underneath them and swat the branch or whatever they're on, knock them in there, and, and you just killed the whole herd. Once they get wings, 
and they're flying around. They are harder to kill. It takes a stronger, more toxic product to kill them. And they are now individually flying around. And so you are just spraying everything, uh, trying to kill them. And at that stage, I think the battle is essentially lost. Um, you could also use the netting if you bought an, a large enough piece that where it would go over a plant and all the way to the ground. Uh, just kind of make sure that wind is moving those blossoms so that they shake and pollinate in the wind. Uh, shaking the, the whole cage of, of the tomato plant would, would also do that. And the netting would, would certainly keep them off of there. Uh, but Beth, those are, those are the not great, but best I can do answers for those particular problem pests. Our phone number is 845-5689. Let's go, let's see now, a question from Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth has some iris leaves, and I cannot tell what kind of iris it is. It doesn't look like a a bearded iris, Uh, but the leaves have white blotches with kind of brownish spots inside of them. And I'll bet if you got up close, and I can't in the picture see it, but I bet if you got up close, what you would see is they, those are raised uh, spots. And I think you probably have some sort of a rust-type fungus on that plant. They are so extensively infected that there's very little leaf tissue left, and it's it's primarily a bunch of yellow and blotchy. Uh, so in that case, I, you might want to just cut the whole thing off at the ground and uh, get it all out of there, throw it away. Don't leave it laying there because those are spores that will fly around and just reinfect and get some fresh new uh, growth coming out. That doesn't get rid of the fungus. Uh, rust fungi float on the air. And uh, so they, they can come back in. There are certain seasons where it may be worse. Uh, but that's what I recommend. It doesn't look like a virus uh, to me. If you wanted to take a sample, you could send a sample to the uh, plant clinic and have them look at it. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a much different answer than I gave you, though, uh, on it. Uh, If this has been a problem in the past, then when the new foliage is coming out in spring, some preventative sprays with a fungicide that is pretty good against rust uh, and I could call us at the extension office and let me give you uh, some examples of some of those, uh, would be a way to prevent them from attacking. At this stage, it is infected. The spots have spread. They're creating their own spores, and it's, it's way too late to spray. Uh, Elizabeth, so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, uh, but that, that, that's, how I would, that's how I would assess that particular one. A question came in from uh, Joe. Joe has some uh, cactus in a bed, and uh, the cactus is opuntia, or flat the prickly pear, the flat padded prickly pear cactus, and it's very pale looking. Uh, and I think he'd had some serious damage from cold uh, when when they were hammered uh, with that. Uh, right now, they don't look like they're cold killed. The ones that are, that I see there in the photos. Uh, have some green in them. I don't know why they're not doing better, but I can tell you that if it's a clay, heavier clay soil, I see they're mulched. The bed is mulched, which would be nicely for all the other plants. Of course, cactus are not that fond of a wet clay soil with a lot of mulch uh, holding moisture and stuff, uh, and so that may be contributing uh, to the problem. So how often does the irrigation run? I see you have drip irrigation in there. Uh, 
probably won't have needed to have run the drip once yet this year. Uh, and so if you are watering, I would cut way back on that and give them a chance to dry out. Maybe pull the mulch back from away from them. Let the soil dry a little bit better. Uh, take a little um, hand trowel, scoop down about four inches and feel the soil. Is it wet or is it dry? I guarantee it's not dry right now. Uh, and only water when it when it really needs it. It's one of the challenges of mixing types of plants that have different requirements. Uh, there's junipers uh, growing uh, in that bed, uh, and I can't see all the things that are in the bed, but I uh, see it looks like a crepe myrtle or whatever. Uh, the, the water requirements on, on plants can be different, and uh, you know, to use an extreme example, if you put a cactus next to a hydrangea or an azalea, uh, one or the other is going to be unhappy, if not both. Uh, and so um, that uh, could be part of the problem. Maybe those could go in a different area, or maybe you could create a raised bed within that bed that goes a little higher that the cactus is in, and its roots are higher and drier, with maybe a little grittier uh, uh, soil mix, some sand, kinds of things like that in the soil mix uh, to uh, facilitate uh, the drainage. I hope that helps. Uh, I want to hit one other quick question. Uh, let's see. We uh, Joni uh, had bought some Fortnite lilies, and after a big freeze, she planted two around the house, uh, and none of them ever bloomed, and she started adding potassium to the feed. Fortnite lilies can be really slow to bloom, Joni. And I, I uh, have often noticed that you see one, it may have a big old clump and three or four blooms in it. Uh, I don't know that there's any particular thing you need to do. They want good sunlight, which uh, if from, from your email, uh, you have varying sunlight. I would expect those in the most sun to do the best. Uh, I wouldn't think that it needs any particular fertilizer to make it bloom. Um, just, you know, a, a good complete fertilizer with a little of everything in it uh, if, if it shows a lack of nutrient. Watch, uh, you know, that it doesn't get too dry in the bed, and then just give it a little bit more time would be my recommendation on that. But that is a, that is a plant that, uh, can, you know, when it blooms, the blooms are pretty, but it can be a little sparse with the blooms. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success, and we look forward next Thursday to visiting with you about your questions. Uh, don't forget to tell your friends about the show, and we'll look forward to, again to talking to you next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.